My name is Tyler Clements. I'm the director of youth and director of music here at Grace. Um, I'm filling in this morning for our interim pastor, Chad, who is in Colorado this weekend uh, being examined, similar to what we heard was happening to uh, our, fu- our future pastor. I guess he's our present pastor, but he's just not here yet, George Boomer. Uh, so Chad is out of town this weekend, um, and so if you were here last week and were just amazed by the preaching on Easter Sunday and wanted to come back because it was your first time visiting and you're like, oh, there's this guy, sorry, uh, he'll be back next Sunday, so, so just, you know, deal with it. Um, CERN, sorry, I really, I love you guys, I feel compassion, I just, we need to start. Uh, open to Acts 20, please, in your Bibles, Acts chapter 20. And uh, as you turn there, as you're turning there, I'm going to pray for us, as is good to do before you read the scriptures any times, to pray for the Lord's help. So let's pray. Uh, Lord God, in your kindness, you have spoken to us in a book that we hold in our hands. This is your word, and so uh, we pray that you give us ears to hear it this morning, eyes to see it for what it is, it's truth. It is life, it's spiritual food by which we can grow up in maturity and Christ-likeness. By your spirit, would you give us understanding and insight so that we would not just know this truth with our minds, but Lord, to truly experience it, to believe it, and to live it out in our lives. So please break through any resistance we may have to it this morning, cause us to be both physically and spiritually awake today, and that with attentive hearts and minds, we would receive what you have to give us this morning. It's in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, I'm going to read Acts 20, verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the three days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And if you feel like you're in the middle of a middle school word problem, share your thoughts with you there. Uh, But that's not what's happening here. So verse seven, verse seven, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms and said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. And then our response to the word together is, the grass withers and the flower falls, 
but the word of the Lord remains forever. So why this text this morning? I have a little smile on my face because it's it's a unique kind of passage for us, isn't it? Well, a few reasons. It's a farewell sermon, essentially, uh, for Paul with this group of believers in this city of Troas. And so we obviously don't know what Paul preached all night long, uh, but it was significant for him because he preached all night long. And so for us, we are sadly about to experience another farewell sermon next Sunday from Chad, and we've already uh, known the experience of hearing farewell sermons, if you will, from our former pastor Bill last year and from Ryan Randolph. And, and so we know the joy, right, of being encouraged, being comforted, being taught the scriptures by God's appointed ministers, but we also know the sadness of saying goodbye when God calls people to other things, and that's exactly what Paul was experiencing in these moments. But also, this is a resurrection story, right? And so, coming on the heels of celebrating Easter last Sunday, I I felt like it seemed like an appropriate passage from which to preach. But then finally, why did I pick this? Well, it's kind of a crazy story, right? It takes up six short verses in this chapter, and I've always wondered why the Lord put this in here. As someone who has teenagers in his house and who works with young people for a living, I always find stories about young people uh, in the scriptures intriguing, even if they're not having their best day. And this was definitely not one of this young man's best days, to say the least. Now, at this point, I think I know what's going through your heads. You're thinking, here's Tyler getting up, filling the pulpit this morning, going to give a sermon on how we shouldn't fall asleep in church, and if we do, God will strike us dead. I know you're thinking that. Well, I'm here to say you're right. You shouldn't fall asleep in church, but if God were to strike us dead for doing so, I wouldn't be here preaching this morning, so we've got that in common. The other thing I'm not going to give today is a sermon on how this text teaches us that preachers should just be able to preach for as long as they want, no matter what the repercussions are. People fall out of windows and die, no big deal. Preachers got to preach, right? Well, no, that's not where I'm going today either. I think what we'll find in the story of Eutychus, it will show us that because the resurrecting power of God is real, that we should be greatly encouraged and live lives that are spiritually awake. See, if, if the resurrection of Jesus really is true, if what we celebrated last week really is true, what difference does it make our lives today? the Sunday after Easter, and next week, and the following week, because I still have days of great disappointment and discouragement. I'm sure you do too. Even though I know Jesus is alive, some days it just doesn't feel like it, and I need to be reminded. I need to be encouraged. I mean, who wouldn't like a little encouragement right now? There are plenty of things in our world and in our own lives that make us discouraged. And when we get to that point of being discouraged, we start to doubt God's presence. We start to doubt his power in our lives. And even when we try with our best efforts to do the right thing, even spiritually, right? Sometimes we find ourselves confronted again with our own weakness, our own limitations, our own inability. And so we need something, we need someone outside of ourselves to help us, to empower us, to save us. 
because we can't do it on our own. And so what we have this morning in our text is proof that God will use the most unexpected circumstances to show himself powerful in the lives of his people. And that should bring us great comfort, great encouragement, and hopefully wake us up spiritually. And so in the book of Acts, God uses the most unexpected circumstances to show himself powerful. And we see that the fruit of God's work after the resurrection of Jesus is amazing. It's encouraging. And so just a quick background into the book of Acts. It's filled, this whole book is filled with all sorts of exciting, sometimes jaw-dropping narratives. The book tells of the drama of the early church filled with spiritual dialogues and sermons, church services and synagogues and people's homes, authentic community, miraculous healings, arrests, imprisonments, beatings, riots, narrow escapes, a shipwreck, trial scenes and rescues, and as our text this morning shows, a resurrection from death. Acts should really be seen as a sequel to the Gospel of Luke, because both books were written by him. It's the story of the early church. It's, it's our roots. This is how the church came about, the big C, capital C, church. And Luke's purpose for writing Acts is the same as he describes it in the first chapter of his gospel, where he says he wants to write an orderly account to have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Why? Because we are prone to doubt and question God's presence and power in our lives. We need certainty. We need assurance. We need confidence because our faith often wavers. Now, Luke, being a physician, cares about the details. And who better to write about such a pivotal moment in Christian history than one who cares about writing an orderly account? Someone who cares about specifics, like the who went where and with whom and what did they do and what did they say and how did it happen? All of those things God has recorded for us through the pen of Luke. Now, one of the main themes in Acts, as you read through it, is that the Word of God is being, being preached. That's how the gospel is going out. It's going out through the preached word about Jesus, about the risen Christ. You'll find a third of this book are speeches. They're sermons, primarily by Peter and Paul. There's one in there from Stephen, all proclaiming about the gospel of the risen Christ. And so Acts reveals a God who's passionate about pursuing his people, beginning with his followers in Jerusalem, and then going out geographically to the areas of Judea and Samaria, and then it says to the ends of the earth, kind of like dropping a rock on a glassy pond, and you see how the waves kind of go out and go out. What's fascinating is that the gospel goes out not through well-planned evangelistic programs or initiatives, slick t-shirts or gospel swag, anything like that, but, but the gospel goes out through weakness, it goes out through opposition and even persecution. And what we see is the power of God at work by his spirit through his apostles to spread the good news about Jesus to the world. Now, how do you do that in an age with no television, with no computers, with no internet, not even radio? Well, you have your feet. You had uh, letters you could write. 
You had animals or ships you could get in to travel around, right? And that's what they did. But here's the, the most important thing we need to remember is that, is that the spirit of the living God, his power is limitless. God is all-powerful. He can do anything. And so when we think of the logistics of how the gospel spread, it really was miraculous. Jesus himself said that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the book of Acts is our proof that nothing will prevail against God's church, his called out ones, his covenant people whom he loves. And we read in this book over and over again evidences of the power of the risen Savior Jesus. We see how the Lord used apostles and prophets to lay the foundation of the church in its new covenant form. It's a unique time in history, really, that will never need to be repeated because the church is now established. I mean, here we are. We are the ends of the earth that Acts 1-8 spoke of. Congratulations, guys. We made it in the Bible. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool to think about. That's why we're here, because the gospel went out. And that's why the book of Acts, it's more descriptive rather than prescriptive for us. Now, I'm not saying that the Spirit doesn't work and move in power in people today, because He does, but we have to be careful about saying we'd like to go back to the way the church was in Acts and expect those same types of miracles and moments. Like those moments were there for a purpose, for a particular time in history to validate and give evidence that this truly was the power of God at work by His Spirit, establishing His church, a worshiping and evangelizing people. And so as we drop into this narrative in Acts 20 in the second half of this book, we see a resurrection story in the context of a first century primitive worship service. And I hope that what we'll see this morning is that because of the resurrecting power of God is real, that we should be greatly encouraged to live lives that are spiritually awake. And so we'll see the power of God bringing encouragement and spiritual life played out kind of in two major ways here. We'll see it through community, and we'll see it through worship. So let's first look at how God's power through community impacted people's lives. We started with verse 1 with all of Paul's traveling plans for a reason. I put that in there for a purpose, because usually, you know, we kind of skim through, like, oh yeah, he traveled here, and we hung out with all these people, and I can't pronounce their names, or when I do, I sound silly, but like, this is important for us to take mention of, because the chapter starts, Paul references an uproar, an uproar. You see, in the previous chapter, in chapter 19, we learn of Paul and his experiences in the city of Ephesus. Paul had spent three years there teaching, preaching about Jesus, and by this time, you could say he had a target on his back because the gospel was changing people's lives. And when believers start worshiping the one true God and not the idols that were made by hands, those idol makers can get really mad because they've lost their revenue Crowds got worked up and eventually a riot happened this day in a giant amphitheater, but eventually the crowds did dissipate and Paul was able to leave Ephesus, but before he left, he did something. Notice what it says in verse 1 and 2 for that matter. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. 
Notice that phrase that's repeated after encouraging them, and he had given them much encouragement. See, what God does is he uses community, and he uses the blessing of encouragement to help these believers along. This wasn't the first time in Acts where we read of Paul doing this. And in chapters 14 and 15 and 16, we read of him, it says Paul in chapter 14 was encouraging them to continue in the faith. In chapter 15, it says he encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. In chapter 16, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. And we see this priority of Paul's in his epistles. As he wrote in Colossians 2, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged. Or he writes in 1 Thessalonians, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Now, why would these believers need encouragement? Because it's so easy to lose heart. It's so easy to lose your passion for Jesus, especially when these believers have probably heard all of the stories of how Christians were being treated at this time period of being arrested, persecuted. They're probably wondering, is this gospel about Jesus, is this news, is it really true? Will it last? Or is this one kind of like flash in the pan kind of moment, light a black cat, it explodes and then forgotten? Well, it reminds me of a guy named Gamaliel. You're like, of course, maybe not. Acts 5, if you want to turn there, you can. Gamaliel went to the defense of the apostles when they were arrested, and here's what he says in Acts chapter 5. Gamaliel is a Pharisee. The apostles had been doing all sorts of miracles and amazing things. They were arrested, and basically he says, hey, there have been a bunch of people claiming to be somebody, leaders of great spiritual movements, but they all fizzled out. Let's, let's let these guys, these apostles of Jesus Christ, let's let them go. Because if this is from man, it will fail. But he says, if it's from God, we don't want to be found opposing God. He's a smart man, isn't he? So he, he's, we read in chapter 5, the end of verse 39, so they took his advice, Gamaliel's advice, and when they, the, um, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple, from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Through much persecution and suffering, the early apostles continued to teach and preach about Jesus. And when Paul encouraged believers there, we don't know necessarily what he said, but perhaps it's similar to what he would say to letters to churches. For example, in Ephesians 4 and 5, he would write in chapter 4 of Ephesians that they would live their lives worthy of the calling they have received. What a great encouraging word, right? You've received a call. God has put a call on your life. He's pulled you out from the rest of the world. Now live into that calling. Good encouragement. He says in verse 2, bear with one another in love. Because he knows that it's going to be hard to love each other. Right? So he says, bear with each other in love. 
He says in verse 3 of Ephesians 4, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit with the bond of peace. Because there's going to be a lot that's going to go up against you guys. But let me encourage you to be united. Don't let things divide you. Emphasize, make a priority that you seek peace together. What good encouragement, right? He says in chapter 5, verse 15 of Ephesians, make the best use of the time because the days are evil. Life is short. Don't waste your time. Don't waste moments. The days are evil. Let's make the best of it. Right? What great encouragement. Maybe he said this, maybe he didn't, but this is what a blessing of encouragement looks like, and we all need that, especially when things are difficult. Who plays that role of encourager in your life? Who are the Pauls, if you will, in your life? I hope people come to your mind. Or who are you called to encourage? Whom has God put in your life that you could be a bringer of encouragement to? Now, as an example of this, I was thinking of my experiences. I coach high school volleyball and some junior high as well, but one of the main things I love about the sport of volleyball is the temperament, or you could say attitude of encouragement that surrounds the game. Uh, and here's what I mean by this. Volleyball is a sport, I don't know if you've thought about this or not, it's a sport where every point is made because of a mistake or an error by either team. Now, there are other sports like this, but like the first team to 25 wins and you win by two, okay? So say it's a close game and it's 25-25, it's a real nail biter. That means that there have been 50 errors or mistakes made by either team to get to that spot in the match, right? So if you're the type of athlete that implodes when you make just two or three mistakes, you're not going to succeed very well in this sport. Volleyball players have to learn how to be encouragers of one another because it's always next point. It's always, we'll get the next one, right? And if you watch good volleyball teams, after a point scored, a lot of times you don't even know which team scored the point, right? Because both teams are huddling up in the middle of the court and they're bringing encouragement to each other to saying, hey, nice job, we got the point. They're like, yeah, good job, nice swing, great job, da-da. And if you didn't, if you lost, you're saying, hey, don't worry about it, we'll get the next one, keep your head up. You just, you know, maybe give a little correction or whatever, but you might not even tell because there's such an encouraging uh, spirit or attitude on the court. Why? Because that's how they can be successful, right? That's how they can be successful, a community of encouragement. And that's no different for us as a community of believers. We all need encouragement. We need to hear that God's with us, that his spirit will empower us, that we can do it, not just in like a you know, grit your teeth and bear it kind of encouragement. Like, you know, I'll just give you a pat on the back. You can do this, come on. But, but encouragement with like real truth behind it. God's truth behind it. We need to regularly surround ourselves with other believers to be givers and receivers of this encouragement. Sorry, in, introverts. You're gonna have to get over this one, right? Like some of you are like, I don't know, I'm fine. But we all need this. And in verse 4, we see this list of people that Paul surrounded himself with. He rarely traveled and did ministry alone. And even when he did, he expressed his longing for human companionship. You see, his missionary journeys always had traveling companions, it seemed. And his third missionary journey that we pick up here in Acts would be no different. 
And what's fascinating is all these men bear witness that are named in verse 4. They bear witness of God's ministry through Paul, for they, all seven of them were from three different missionary journeys that he took. So we see the fruit of Paul's ministry. Lives were being changed. The resurrection of Jesus was being proclaimed, and the power of God was at work in that community of encouragement. So can I put it for us this way this morning? Can I encourage us to be encouragers? Can I challenge us to be encouragers, to have the, part of, uh, the heart of Paul in this way, to desire to bring God's word of encouragement to others? And maybe it's a face-to-face, maybe it's a letter, maybe it's an email or a text you send to somebody, just, hey, friend, I'm praying for you. Hey, don't forget, God is with you. You know, my wife, uh, Lindsay, reminded me the other day of the power of encouragement. Um, there was a moment back in September of 2020 when she was just walking through the church here. She, she was passing through the kitchen, I think, and she got a text on her phone. I guess that's the only place you would get a text. I don't include that part. She got a text. It was a girl who had recently graduated out of the youth group, and she wanted to share with Lindsay Uh, Just how much she appreciated her life and her ministry here, her witness here. I think she said she, even after she moved on from here, she still had the the gospel truth going through her mind, you know, that she she would hear at BBS. And she just wanted to say, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your family. And Lindsay says she can remember that exact spot, like that very significant spot in the kitchen where she got that text and it brought tears to her eyes. See, God works through our words of encouragement, because the source is the resurrecting power of Jesus. They're not just fortune cookie phrases. These, this is truth that God gives us to bear, brings us to bear in each other's lives. And so we see the resurrecting power of God displayed in community, but we can also see it very obviously in this context of worship, this gathering of believers for this evening communion service. So these apostles have spent their week in Troas, their week-long mission trip, you could say, and now it's over. It's the final day, the last opportunity to worship together. And so we read in Acts 20, verse 7 again, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now this is a significant detail Luke includes for us that it was on the first day of the week. This is one of the first times we can see and find recorded in Scripture where believers are gathering on a Sunday after the resurrection to worship. They gathered to break bread, to receive the Lord's Supper. And since Paul was intending to leave the next day, he had much to tell them. Luke says he prolonged his speech until midnight. Wow. I will be done before noon, hopefully. Then verse 8, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. See, in true Luke fashion, he's setting the stage for his readers with certain details. These many lamps in the crowded upper room, a better word would probably be torches, filling the room with light and most likely heat. It was warm. The oxygen levels are probably pretty low. People were crammed into this upper room. It really was the perfect recipe for someone, anyone, to be overcome by sleep. In verse 9, And a young man in Eutychus, sitting at the window, 
sunk into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Wow. He fell out of a window. Tragedy strikes. Here they are listening probably intently. This is the Apostle Paul preaching. You know, maybe he was talking about the previous event in Ephesus months before and the riots. Maybe they were asking him about his conversion story. Tell us, how, tell us again, how did that work? How did, how did Jesus arrest you that day? And like, I, we don't know what they were saying, but we do know what Luke says is that Paul was talking all through the night and that this man Eutychus, this young man, was overcome by sleep and fell out of the third story window to his death. Now remember, Luke, who's writing this, is a physician. He knows what a dead person looks like. Because I know some of you might be sitting here thinking, well, maybe the young boy just didn't actually die. Maybe he just fell but just got knocked out. But the text says he was taken up dead. No, that means no life in you, taken up dead. So before we all come down hard on Eutychus for being foolish enough to sit in a window, I think we have to have compassion on this kid. He deserves more credit, I think, than we like to give him. First, it was the Lord's Day, and this day actually was still a work day back in this time period. The day to rest was the day before, the Sabbath. So most likely, Eutychus and everyone in this room had worked a full day and were tired. Now, secondly, the room did have all the perfect ingredients for dozing off, as we talked about a second ago. But thirdly, we got to give this kid credit because he is actually smart enough to hop up into probably the coolest part of that room, right, that night, a breezy window opening. And so he's wise there. But Luke doesn't seem to attach any blame on this young man because he continues to emphasize the length at which Paul was speaking multiple times. So let's cut Eutychus some slack here. Nevertheless, he falls to his death, no doubt, with a sound that many would have a hard time erasing from their memory. I mean, all the attention of this evening worship service was now on this young boy. What's going to happen next? Verse 10, but Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. A miracle happens. Paul bends over him. Some translations say he puts his arms around him or he fell upon him. And Paul tells the crowd, do not be troubled because he's alive. I find it interesting. Paul didn't go down to the boy and exclaim something we all probably would have said, which is someone call a doctor, right? <laughs> that would have been my first thought. And Luke was standing by, no doubt, but Luke was not needed. What Eutychus needed and what he received was the grace and mercy of God in his life. The resurrecting power of God was on display through Paul as he takes up this young boy and he's resurrected to life again. Now perhaps Paul had in his mind prophets Elijah and Elisha from the Old Testament. You might remember those who experienced the power of God as each one raised people from the dead. Or maybe Paul remembered stories of people whom Jesus had raised from the dead. The widow's son 
or the 12-year-old daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, or most famously, Jesus' friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. Jesus calls him out from the grave to live again. And so Eutychus was revived. He was brought back to life. And then back up the stairs they went and continued their communion service. Can you imagine what the feeling of the room must have been like at this point? Probably filled with tremendous amount of joy, complete wonder of what they'd just seen. There was probably no more point in Eutychus' life where he was more awake (laughs) than that moment, right? So they went on sharing the Lord's Supper. They ate a fellowship meal and they listened to Paul continue to preach until the sun started to rise. Verse 11, and when he, uh, Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. This negative expression is a common uh, phrase in Greek, common way to, to do that, not a little comforted. But the NIV probably puts it a little more like we would say, which is that they were greatly comforted by this boy's testimony, this miracle that happened. So we can't come down too hard on Eutychus, but I do feel sorry for him. I mean, how many people through church history have fallen asleep in a church service, and this poor kid happens to be the one with Luke and Paul on that night for it to be recorded for all of history? (laughs) But let me say this as well, and I'll just be, this is real talk with Tyler, okay? It's easy to fall asleep in church. Can I just say that? On any given Sunday, there are a number of people susceptible to falling asleep. And I have sympathy. I really do, because some of you, for some of you, this might be the first time in your busy schedules where you've actually stopped to be quiet and just sit still. It's a comfortable, temperature-controlled room. Well, some think it's too cold. I think it's great. Um, I don't set the temperature, by the way. It's not my job. I don't even know whose job it is. Pastor Boomer's probably. (laughs) Put this on. Hopefully he's watching. You've got comfy pews. They're padded, right? The calm of listening to the soothing voice of Tyler. (laughs) It makes your body think it's time to shut down, perhaps, right? Now, credit to Eutychus. As a young man, he could have been many other places that night, but thankfully, he was in that service. He wanted to hear Paul preach. He just happened to pick the wrong spot in the room. Falling asleep in church, it's not, I don't think it's not, it's not what concerns a pastor, really, because it can happen for any number of reasons, right? Good or bad. So, leave that aside. But what concerns me, or what would concern any pastor, anyone in ministry for that matter are people in churches today whose bodies are awake and they're sitting in the pews or seats but whose souls are asleep whose spiritual lives are dead that's a concern of anyone in ministry there are multitudes of people who are in danger of being shut out of the kingdom of God because they're asleep even maybe while at church going through the motions right singing the songs saying the responsive readings, all of that, thinking that maybe you're earning something towards your salvation, that God will look favorable upon you upon your last day here on earth because you went to church, you did all the right things. That's not the gospel. It's not why we do this. It's not why we're here. You should ask yourself, am I awake? 
Have I ever truly been awake? And the risen Jesus is calling you from death to life. The offer of forgiveness and eternal life is always available to you. But also, I think there's a danger for those of us who grew up in church, perhaps, who have been part of church our whole lives, and it's this, it's the danger of familiarity. Oh yeah, I've heard this verse before, right? Like a lot of you high schoolers, I heard you guys talked about this last week in Sunday school, an appropriate text, Ray, for Easter Sunday to talk about resurrection stories. But you might be like, oh yeah, I already heard this, or the songs that we sing, you're like, yeah, I've sung that before. You know, here we go again. See, we can be like a travel agent who who books trips for people to all these destinations around the world that we've researched and learned all about, and perhaps we've never been to those places, and perhaps we even convince ourselves that we've been there without ever leaving our desk. This can happen to any one of us if we allow ourselves to be overcome by sleep. So I think the question is, we need to ask ourselves is, how do I stay awake? Not just physically, but how do I stay spiritually awake? For one, I would suggest you can take a a spiritual inventory, if you will, and see whether you truly have ever been awake. Does your life give evidence to God's work in and through you? Think of these questions like, what do you long for? What do you desire? What's your purpose? What are you trusting in? And if glorifying God and if If enjoying him and getting to know him is not up there, then I'd encourage you to humble yourself, to maybe admit, I might be spiritually asleep, spiritually dead, and just start with a simple prayer that just says, God, would you just slowly, or maybe rambunctiously, however you want to do it, begin to wake me up to spiritual things and to throw yourself upon the grace of God. To admit and confess your sin, to repent, to turn from it, and to trust in the work of Jesus on your behalf. Because Jesus has done it all. And his grace, it's it's just that. It's grace, it's a gift, it's free, so receive it. And so another thing we can and must do to stay spiritually awake is with regard to our times of corporate or we say gathered worship. We are to consciously and purposefully participate in the worship of the church. We should worship with our whole selves, our whole being. When we sing a song, we should sing as if Jesus were like standing right there in front of us. When we read the scriptures together, we should listen to the voice of God. I mean, that's the part of the service probably least tainted by man. When we pray, We should agree, when you hear people praying, agree with what they're praying, allow our emotions to line up with what's being said and influenced by how people pray. You can learn a lot by hearing other people pray and being engaged. When you hear a sermon preached, we should listen for God's voice. No matter if you like the preacher or not, right? They're being a herald of God's word and he speaks as they preach. See, when we come together and worship like this, we should engage with our whole selves. This is how we cannot fall asleep in church. And so Eutychus was raised to life again, and he rejoined that communion service probably more awake than he would be ever in a church service. But what does this mean for us today? 
What does this mean? As I've already, as we've already seen, because of the resurrecting power of God, because it's real, we can take encouragement from our community. We can be encouraged in our time of worship together. But finally, this. When we celebrated, uh, or what we celebrated last Sunday was not just an event in history that we all agree happened, which it did. Jesus rose from the dead. And that impacts us, not just in our hope of future resurrection, but the resurrection of Jesus impacts our lives today. When you stood up and sang, Christ the Lord is risen today last week, I'm guessing you didn't sing it with your fingers crossed, did you? No, I I hope that you meant it, that he is risen, that today, right? Christ the Lord is risen today, it impacts today and every day. And as believers, we live in the Spirit. We're united to Christ in His death, in His resurrection, and in His ascension. We're not empowered by our sinful flesh anymore, but by the Spirit. If you want to turn to Romans 8, um, Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. He says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is how the resurrecting power of God is known in the believer today. It's this if-then statement, right? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then what? Then he will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Both life to come, but also a righteous life today. See, because Jesus is alive, we share in his righteousness, as it says in verse 10. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in the believer, dwells in you. Consider that next time you walk in to the doors of your school, to your workplace, to your home, to our church, to the grocery store, wherever you go. For the believer, you have the resurrecting power of God in you by his spirit. The death and resurrection of Jesus proved himself righteous before the Father so that now by faith, guess what? We too share in his righteousness. And now another way in which the resurrection impacts us today is, is the confidence, the assurance The conviction, remember I said at the beginning we all need this because our faith wavers. Well, we too can have this confidence that we will experience our own resurrection on the last day. So you have the handful of resurrection stories you might find in the scriptures. All but one have something in common. They all had to die again. But one resurrection story is different. Jesus is still alive. He will never die again. He's what the scriptures call the the firstborn of the dead. 
as Revelation puts it, meaning Jesus is not just the first in time to rise from the dead for eternity, but he is also the first in preeminence. He's the first initiator of this new era of God bringing about, that he is bringing about through the victory of Jesus over sin and over death. Jesus' resurrection from the dead now opens a way for all who trust in him to follow him into a resurrection just like his when he returns. Every healing, every miracle done by Jesus or an apostle is just a foretaste of something to come, right? Yes, it did brought help, it did bring healing in that moment to those people, but their lives were not complete or perfected after the miracle. That will only happen on the other side, in the new heavens and the new earth. But sometimes, God in his kindness gives us a taste of things to come. Sometimes this future reality for us is brought to the present moment to encourage us, to give us hope. Your future, my friends, our future is one of resurrection. No more tears, no more fatal falls from three-story windows, no more death, only life. Think about that. That moment in Acts 20, God brought a future reality to the present for Eutychus. Paul would write in Philippians that I may know him, meaning Jesus. That Paul would know the power of his resurrection, Philippians 3.10. Paul knew the power of the resurrection because he actually experienced the spirit of Jesus at work to bring this young man back to life. The resurrection of the dead belongs to the end of the age when Jesus returns. And so we presently live in this tension between the realization and the expectation, right? You've heard it said between the already and the not yet. And so I want to close with this little phrase from Paul, a prayer he prayed in Ephesians. I want it ringing in our ears as we go today. Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying for the believers there. In verse 18, I'll jump in mid-sentence, which isn't always the best to do, but he prays that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, uh, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Paul's praying for them, and we can apply this prayer for us, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us. So if you, we are united to God by his spirit, then we have the resurrecting power of God over sin, power over death, power over the devil himself, power that on the last day, when Christ returns, will bring us to himself to resurrect all those who have gone before and to join with all the saints and angels for eternity. And that, my friends, I pray gives you hope, great encouragement as we seek lives, seek to live lives that are always fully awake, fully engaged, fully present to the power of God at work in us and around us. And that what was said of Eutychus could hopefully be said of each of us, right? Don't be alarmed, don't be troubled, for his life is in him. May we know that life, that real resurrected 
resurrection life. Let's pray. Father, I ask, I pray, we pray that we'd be a people that lives with the awareness of your power and presence with us at all times. Uh, Thank you for the hope of the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you what that brings to us every day, that no matter what is brought into our lives, we have the confidence of your power and the encouragement of your scriptures to persevere. So please help us to be an encouraging people, an awake people, a hopeful people, so that we might know you, that others might know you, and that the power of your resurrection would be real in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.